Good evening and welcome to Horror. I'm Lee. I'm Chris. I'm Adam. Uh, sorry, I went into that a little bit quickly and caught everybody slightly off guard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we are here to discuss, as it is our Halloween, or nearest to Halloween episode, um, we mm. are here to discuss Halloween from 1978, which hey, somehow, as we mentioned last time, we haven't yet watched. Hmm. Does seem surprising. It does. I think it's one of those. I don't want to get too much into it, but for me, it's one of the, like I've said before so many times. I love a slow burn film, but they're not the mm. ones I go back to time and time again. They're the ones that resonate with me, but I'm less yeah. likely to just so sit you there and think of it and go, "That's the one." Yeah, yeah. I'm going to watch Rosemary's Baby. Like, I just don't. Mm. They're the ones. Oh, you keep you keep dropping that hint. It's like that is getting built up and built up. <laughs> it's, it's part of the very long list, Chris. As we sort of sit, yeah. as I sit here, it's like every so often I just go, "He ain't seen that. He ain't seen that." And it's yeah. But no, I know what you mean. I think the slow burn stuff. It's like that's when you're in the mood to actually watch a movie, yeah. Rather mm. than I just need something to entertain me for an hour and a half. So yeah, yeah absolutely. I think also probably because we've previously done a lot of john carpenter yeah mm-hmm. so maybe we've sort of you know we're, we're trying to vary it up because I, I having a look back with yeah if, if for more on john carpenter see episode three prince of darkness episode six big trouble in little china episode 12 halloween three oh blimey episode 23 in the mouth of madness and episode mm-hmm. 30 the thing yeah <laughs> We did smash through a load of his. We did need a big 70-episode gap before we returned, I think. Yeah. I did notice them watching the thing in this one. Yeah, well, the original. The original. It was, it was pretty, pretty obvious because it said the thing on the screen. But, yeah. yeah. And Jennifer said, oh, the original. Is that any good? Mm. That's wank. Um, yeah. But before we get into any of that, um, let's have a usual weekly catch-up discussion. Chris. My little darling, have you seen anything Ooh. since our last episode? I I have. I decided to well go back slightly. Not that I'd really started, but um, I got my PlayStation VR out of the cupboard, which has been there Ooh. for a little while now. And I had a quick look to see what was on there, and I noticed that you can now get Now TV and Netflix on there. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's see how that looks. Is it as good as sitting in the cinema? Hmm. Um, and it turned out actually not bad. It is. Hmm. It was quite good at adding a little extra eeriness and um, in, you know impressiveness to the experience. And okay. I was wondering why does it put me on edge more wearing it? I think it's because as you're watching a film and especially a horror film, it's the sense that I am the dweeb wearing some technology, and there is someone behind me with a big hacksaw. <laughs> <laughs> while I'm watching the horror film in the horror film. And it's like, it's hard to sort of get that out of your mind that because you obviously you've got no idea what's going on around you. So <laughs> I, like you completely I can get past the whole sort of like the suspicion that someone's there flicking the V. Yeah. yeah, well yeah, like <laughs> at least you don't get your head chopped off with that. But yeah, it's it is a, a bit disconcerting. And so it does actually add, certainly at the moment, I mean if I get used to it, fair enough. But yeah, for the moment it's it's quite powerful. Um and so I thought as I was flicking through, seeing what was on uh, Now TV or Netflix, one of them, um, 
I saw Doom Annihilation. I didn't realise it had been remade again. And I thought the the one with Dwayne Johnson was it was okay if you like mm-hmm. Doom. You know, it wasn't bad, but obviously it's not gonna go down in history as a fantastic film, but I thought, look, let's have a look at this. It turned out this had one star. So I thought, how could this be, you know, so much worse than the other one? This has got to be a perfect film, a bit of action. Let's try it out on the big screen. And like, and I decided it was, uh, I decided to carry on watching it because I thought it does actually have quite a horror aspect to it um, mm. because you've got a load of zombies in there um, and it's quite dark and, um, yeah, a bit mysterious, a bit of supernatural demons, you know. So I thought, yeah, fair enough, let's carry on with this. Um, like it was okay. Uh, if you liked the original Doom game, it's not bad. It did have a bit of a feeling of being kind of a fan film, mm-hmm. possibly more than a, a truly, you know, polished work of art. Um, so I can kind of see why it probably got the one star. Um, they had a few secrets, a few Easter eggs in there that sort of made it fun. So, you know, it's it's an okay watch. But I think I definitely enjoyed it more being so immersed watching it. Um, and, and so, yeah, so I thought, well, this is good. I'll do this with Halloween as well. Oh, cool. Cool. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's what I watched. Nice. So I might have to um, – so I haven't got VR, but, yeah, that would tip me more towards checking it out, I think. I'd be – I would be keen to see what it's like in that mm. – in that situation. Did you did you like the one with Dwayne Johnson in? I didn't mind it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I think it was you who told me to watch it last. So yeah, like you say, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a dumb action movie, but it was it was a fun two hours. Like it didn't mm. take itself too seriously. It was a stupid movie. You knew it was a stupid movie, and it just kind of went with it. So it was yeah. quite. Is it... That's why. Yeah, it seemed surprising that someone else had decided to to have a go at it. Maybe, I mean, I maybe, to, maybe you need to save the Netflix experience because, like, it might detract from a film you're really trying to get into and just save it for films where you're like, I want to watch this, but it's probably going to be a bit shit. So if I give it yeah. that a boost, like that extra gimmick. <laughs> well, so I'm wondering, you know, having watched Halloween on it, I'm wondering if I could actually brave watching Sinister on it. <laughs> that would be a li- little bit tricky, but I'm going <laughs> to give it a go on every film and just see... <laughs> Yeah, I Excellent. think Sinister might be a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> um, Adam, have you watched anything since our last meeting? Um, I've watched Crumbs, which is uh, it's the first film by the guy. Do you remember I told you a lot about uh, Jesus shows you the way to the highway? Yes. And everyone got a bit excited because it sounds so mm. bizarre. Uh, yeah, this was his uh, first sort of post-apocalyptic film um slow dreamy i i mean i enjoyed it but i I think i preferred jesus shows me the shows you the way to the highway um but it's again that sort of thing of being set after an undisclosed thing the undisclosed event apocalypse end of the world and there's a spaceship dangling in the sky and everyone trades in commodities of like pop culture ephemera like uh, Ninja Turtle key rings and Michael Jackson albums. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was sort of an interesting one, but I'm still not quite sure if I know what it was about. Oh, and yeah. Santa, 
Santa Claus lived in a ball return in a bowling alley. Um, yeah, it's that yeah. sort of film. Yeah. On another note, though, I had to basically, you know, we don't know with the upcoming American election, there's the distinct possibility that Trump may not be in power. <laughs> so I had to show Claire the running man before he was, before he possibly wasn't. <laughs> because I just, yeah. And um, yeah, I haven't watched The Running Man for a long, long time. Desperately entertaining. But mm. Arnie's puns are rubbish. Like throughout, <laughs> there's not a good one. I mean, it really puts into sharp relief. You actually sit there going, it was better in Batman and Robin. And that's fucking oh, saying something. God. At least they at least they were possibly appropriate quips, but in the Running Man, it's just yeah, not not much cop, but entertaining, you know, classic. I think of the the one I think does he shout out "Hey Christmas Tree" to the uh, yeah, guy and, 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 and Lighthead and Lighthead, <laughs> hey Lighthead, and you're like, that's not that's not even an insult, mate. That's like that's a description. Yeah, <laughs> hey, long hair, you know. <laughs> But um, but the two things that struck me, one was the soundtrack. The, the main theme of it, I am convinced now, was the blueprint for the music to Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. <laughs> and Hi. secondly, and this is one of those things that I've never quite registered for some reason, but Mick Fleetwood is in it. And he's the head of the resistance that they end up going to. Is he? Yeah, and that, yeah, the old, the old boy with the beard. Mm. That's Mick Fleetwood, as in Fleetwood Mac. Um, <laughs> but I've never noticed it before. He's called Mick in the film. <laughs> so I kind of think he's meant to be Mick Fleetwood in the future, which actually is 2000, it's 2019, it's setting. Oh, blimey. And actually... That's one of those. Reasonably accurate, you know, food riots and uh, <laughs> yeah. game show host running the country is essentially, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, I need to go back and rewatch that film. I've not seen it in decades. It's It really is entertaining, but mm. not always necessarily in the way that it thinks it is. It should be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but I think you enjoyed it, didn't you, Claire? <laughs> There you go. That's the uh, yeah. I think there are some (laughs) Arnold Schwarzenegger films you everyone probably should watch. Yeah. Well, that was part of my thing where it was I showed a RoboCop as well. I Mm. think I think it's just at the moment it's like yeah I'll show you all the dystopias because they've all come true. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think yeah no there are certain Arnie essentials and I count the Running Man as an and it is a Stephen King. Mm short story that it's based yeah. on though it kind of uh it kind of borders into into horror especially because it's you know just it's it's the what they called the stalkers are just hilarious mm. you basically roidy hulk hogan with a fucking chainsaw um the enormous japanese ice hockey guy yeah and the opera singing electric man who is actually played by Grossberger from uh, Stir Crazy. Do you know and what? I've got tomorrow off. I think I'm going to re watch this film. Go for mm. it. It's, seriously, you, 
I can honestly say you won't regret it, even if you do regret it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, calendar. Yeah, and that's all the weather. Yeah. Excellent. Um so I've been carrying on with my going through my Halloween viewing. Mm-hmm. Um so I have managed this week. Uh, I started with the Halloween tree because that, oh, yeah. that is a staple and needed watching. As I mentioned previously, it's finally come out on DVD after me trying to get hold of it <laughs> on, on DVD for about 15 years. So I was massively excited when that came out. Um, so I watched that. Always amazing. Uh, Tales from the Dark Side. I rewatched the pilot episode of that. Um, it's called Trick or Treat. Uh, and it is written and directed by George A. Romero. I think he did a few. Um, I think Toby Hooper did as well, actually. Yeah. But, yeah, that first one is just outstanding. It's just one of my absolute favourite, like, horror episodes of anything yeah. ever. Um, I watched the sequel to The Babysitter, the Netflix original that I raved about when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the sequel, uh, Killer Queen, what they've done is they've taken all the things that you really loved about the first one and then shit all over it, effectively. Um, I felt that's where this review was approved <laughs> from the one you described going there. It was. Like, it's one of those, I started making two or three notes and then I was like, this is just shit. It's not even worth me making notes about because it is so bad. Um Get really disappointing. The first one's fantastic. They've got all the cast back, spoiler alert, for the new one. Um, So I was like, how can it possibly go wrong? It was only a year ago, same cast. It's going to be excellent. Oh, and it's just not. Same same director and... Uh, Not sure. I I was so exhausted at the end of it, I couldn't even be bothered to go and look. I just wanted it to be over and to be able to forget about it. It was terrible. Um. And then the next thing, I haven't finished watching it, but I've watched most of it. Uh, so those of our listeners who listen to Not For Everyone podcast uh, will be aware of Deep State Rex. <laughs> um, Deep State Rex suggested a um, Friday the 13th fan film mm-hmm. that came out a few days ago. Um, it's a Friday the 13th one, as I mentioned, uh, called Never Hike in the Snow. Oh, yes. I saw a post about that. Like 31 minutes long. It's awesome. It's really good. I only got to see two thirds of it and then I had a phone call and I came away and I didn't get a chance to go back to it. Um, But yeah, it's really solid. It's really well written. It's really well acted. The effects and stuff are great in it. It kicks off because it's only 31 minutes. Like right off the bat, it's straight into kill mode. Um, So, yeah. I'll definitely be finishing that. Um, so I don't know who's made it, but I'm sure when I looked at it yesterday, it had something ridiculous, like 58,000 views, and it had only been up for two days or something. So, What's this on YouTube? Yeah. So whoever the, the fan film is made by, they've clearly already got some kind of a following because, uh, yeah, it's clearly already made an impression. But, but quite rightly so. It's, it's really, really enjoyable. So uh, any fans of Friday the 13th, go and check that out. And now from Friday the 13th to Halloween, 
in close proximity as they should be. Mm -hmm. So, Chris, had you seen this before? No, I've only seen Halloween 3, which is <laughs> not Michael Myers. No. So, He's like the witch, as you I, said, quite right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, now now I've seen the proper Halloween, and completely makes sense why you would compare it to Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. So yeah, I can definitely say I absolutely see why this is considered a classic. It's got everything in it. Um, I mean, obviously to start with, you've got the amazing Donald, not the crap Donald. And I'll just leave that hanging. I might be talking about Donald Trump, or it could be <laughs> Donald Duck. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, you know, who, who doesn't love Donald Pleasant? town, Sherry. <laughs> <laughs> Looked in his eyes. They're, they're empty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I think we've seen Donald Pleasant's in... Definitely one other film was it could be two. I can't remember what the second would be though. Again, this is another but, one where we've we've he's been in a few as yeah, he, yeah. Um, he, episode three, Prince of Darkness, which was obviously also a John Carpenter uh, film. And, so and I didn't really that, know him properly then though. And in that, he plays Father Loomis, who is presumably mm. Doctor Loomis's brother. Um, then in episode twenty-four. Death line. Yeah. Get your hair cut. <laughs> and I'd forgotten completely about this. Episode 68, The Uncanny. I forgot we even covered that film, to be honest. Oh, shit. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, Donald yeah. Pleasance has appeared in two of my He's... birthday episodes as well. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, you can't really go wrong with him, can you? It's just something about him. He just does what he does well. He does. He does it so fucking well. But um, Well, apparently he was um, third choice. Mm. Uh, John, Car John Carpenter wanted, basically John Carpenter wanted an established English horror star. So mm. he tried Peter Cushion, he tried Christopher Lee, and then he tried Donald Pleasance. And apparently Christopher Lee was after, I mean, obviously because it was just a massive success. But um, so Christopher Lee was said has said since had said since that he'd regretted not taking the role. I don't um, see him in the role is the problem. No, I, mean, no. I think he'd be a bit too stern. Yeah, mm. you know, you get there's a there's a gentleness about Donald Pleasance, even though he is he's yeah he's, he's telling up. you off. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, but, but he seems affected by it, whereas Christopher mm -hmm. Lee can only play in power of the situation, which clearly mm. Loomis isn't. Yeah. So I don't think he'd necessarily... Not, not to knock him, I mean, he's an incredible actor, but yeah. I, yeah, I don't think he would have fit that role at all. And I don't, I don't know how far Peter Cushing would be able to play the that other end of it, curiously enough. I don't know how far... Would, I, would you believe Peter Cushing following... Like his patient with the intent of shooting him. No, and it's yeah. So I think they hit they hit a very happy mm. medium there. But apparently Donald Pleasance, um, basically, I mean, he's in loads of the sequels and stuff like that. And obviously did Prince of Darkness. Mm. So him and John Carpenter got on really well. 
but apparently yeah when he first arrived he said i've i've no idea about this film but my daughter who's a musician really liked the music for your film assault on precinct 13 <laughs> and so that's why i've taken it oh that, and uh, also I had a big alimony bill apparently so <laughs> um but yeah yeah so but that's <laughs> but i think he I think John Carpenter definitely right in that you need someone who can sell that. Mm. And quite rightly, he's gone with the sort of thought of, well, it's got to be an established British horror actor. It's, it's almost in the same way that, you know, no one really holds a flame against uh, Ian McDermott as the emperor. Yeah. So, so you've al- he's already fucking brilliant, but then you put in like, Poor Hayden Christensen, I think, is really out of his fucking depth <laughs> when he's playing with them to a plane. And I think it's yeah. it, but with this, I think everyone, everyone involved with Donald Pleasant steps up and you know, because he's not really, it, it's very separate. I mean, him and Laurie only really cross paths right at, right at the end. Um, and she's the only person I've seen in anything. I mean, obviously, everyone knows Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, but, yeah, she's the only person who, from this film I think I've ever seen in anything ever. Her and um, Donald Pleasant are the only ones. Yeah, PJ Souls, who is... Oh, I, can, I always get my two names mixed up. Who's Linda, who is the one with her boyfriend, Bob. Oh, yeah. Um, she's in Carrie. Oh, okay. She's Norma in Carrie. She's in a few other bits and pieces. She's also in The Devil's Reject. She's the one who um, uh, Captain Spaulding steals her car. Oh, I remember so little about that film yeah. now. So, but yes, I mean, she's sort of done bits and pieces. There's sort of bits and pieces, but really the only proper... Because you've got Donald Pleasance who's established, and this is really the film that puts Jamie Lee Curtis on the map. Um, and yeah, yeah she, she was great in this. Yeah, she is really fucking good, especially because she was quite convinced she was convinced she was going to get the sack because she <laughs> yeah. just thought she was being shit. When in actual mm. fact, it's like no, I th- it yeah, <laughs> you're doing a very you know, good job. I think, um, like I figured, they're all meant to seem like none of them are, you know, hero material it's like they're just normal people Hmm. and so you know you almost don't want overacting in it it's like you know something is descending upon them and and yeah and obviously she does well at the end um but only out of terror not out of yeah yeah exactly and it it looks and she's and she's and thing is Mm. say donald donald pleasance is the big name in this yeah but as you said, Adam, their scenes never really cross, and his are much less than hers. Jamie Lee Curtis basically comes out of nowhere and carries this entire movie. Yeah, fantastically. Um, yeah, if ever a film was set to 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 kickstart a good career, this is the mm. one because there's so much focus on her for that. I mean, it's only an hour and a half running time, mm. but as you say, she's in most of the scenes. If if she isn't in them, then Donald Pleasance are in them, and it just focuses mainly on those two characters. Everybody else is secondary. Yeah, there's certainly around those two orbits. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think she... Yeah, I mean... Go on, man. Well, so I was thinking, you know, like mentioning Michael there, at the start, I mean, that's quite a hard-hitting start, isn't it? Showing, like, what age is he? Six. Uh, six, yeah. yeah, six. I was thinking six, seven. So, yeah, and, you know, the way that plays straight away, it's like, okay, it's, this is pretty serious. Um, I mean, they, they, it's... I guess uh, what I wanted to check, uh, I didn't quite know if I'd missed something here, but I didn't re- see any supernatural elements until the end. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's it's a weird. There's a there, it's a weird tangled thing. I was I'm actually mm. I was I'm slightly annoyed. I think we should we should have um, I should have contacted uh, Drew, who mm. obviously came in uh, on our Friday the thirteenth episode yeah. but yeah. drew is a halloween michael myers like aficionado he's watched through all he's seen all of them mm. and it's weird because there's like a basically from what i can gather that there's three halloween timelines that not including halloween three and not including rob zombies like remakes mm. etc but and the new remake, which I'd completely forgotten, even existed. Yeah. <laughs> well, but there's so, so yeah. In the first film, Michael Myers is a physic. He's a, a human being who is committing murders. I mean, regardless of his, you know, the whole thing where they don't have a handle on why he's doing it. Yeah. It's basically this whole thing that psychoanalysis and everything has completely failed mm. and that's really Donald Pleasance's thing where it's like he's gone from trying to trying to work him out, figure out yeah. to just no we need to keep this inside <laughs> because we can't figure this out and mm. this is something wrong or something has gone wrong with this person but then it's sort of but like you say at the very end he can somehow survive being shot six times and still get stabbed away. in the neck. I mean, so that's where you get a hint that something's up because yeah, she stabs him in the neck with the uh, the yeah. needle, and she, um, stabs, she stabs him with the knife as well. Yeah, yeah. So it's, and, and the coat hanger. Mm. And it's. I mean, that's pretty resourceful. Yeah. The other thing as well that I got that I'd never noticed this time, but again, does lend spoiler alert to Chris. Uh, there are big hints that there are supernatural things going on that are added mm. in, the, in the later sequels. Um, mm. Yeah, the fact that he's been in prison since he was, or in the asylum since he was six years old, escapes on this one day and somehow ha- manages to, for no apparent reason, he latches onto Laurie Schrode and knows mm. where she goes to school, where she will, works, where she goes home, the way she walks home, like he's there at every turn. And it, I'd never really noticed it until this time. And then I was suddenly like, why has he picked her? How is it just, it's it's as if he's gone there specifically to go for her and f- mess with all her friends and everything that surrounds her for no reason. There's a, there's a thought that she is the first teenage girl that he sees. Because he obviously oh, goes back to the house. Oh, because she takes the keys. She takes yeah, the keys there. Yeah. So it's like he... Because then it's a lot of prowling the streets and driving around. Mm. I mean, I suppose if it's a small town, it's like, right, she's a schoolgirl, there's one school. Mm. 
or you know, there's the high school or whatever like that. So that yeah. Yeah, which which kind which it does kind of make us because this is the thing as well where loads of people have attached to um have attached to Halloween the whole thing of like uh sex equals death. So if mm -hmm. you have sex, you're going to die. But if you don't, you... And, but that doesn't compute because Michael Myers goes after Laurie anyway. He doesn't manage to kill her in this He doesn't film. manage to kill her, but, the, but, the, but then as... I think John Carpenter said, it's like everyone else is so wrapped up in their own shit mm. that they've not noticed. It's just that Laurie is sort of like a removed sort of person. She's a bit sort of awkward. Yeah, mm. so she's just got slightly, she's slightly more aware, whereas everyone else is just busy trying to get laid, so yeah. they're not really concentrating. And and also, I mean, let's face it, I mean, from Doctor Loomis's fucking suggestion, the police don't alert anyone. Yeah, you know, <laughs> which no, <laughs> I know there was the thing of oh well, they'll they'll see them on every street corner if you announce it. And it's like yeah, but they might fucking see him. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and not get murdered by him. He Man, did drive or... right past you, you Belling, and you just completely. <laughs> I, I really mean... like that scene actually. Yeah, but I've is... forgotten how much he is around. And mm. weirdly enough, that's another one that I always find. I always find the daylight stuff creepier. Like when he just stands, when he's standing by the hedge. Yeah, mm. and it's just out of focus. Because you don't really make out the mask almost till the very end. Yeah. Mm. It could be, it yeah, could when you get be a very ups. pale yeah. face or it could be a... Yeah. You know, it's, not, it's never quite seen... I think it's first really seen when uh, he kills uh, Bob and Linda. Hmm. Um, I think that's really when you first sort of see the mask in, its, in all its glory. And it's, yeah, I think it the sound of it was what got me this time. I don't remember noticing that before. The scenes where it's from his eyes, and it is it's that perfect sound of when you're wearing a mask and you can just hear your own breath reverberate. Own, yeah. yeah, oh, and it's just so unnerving. Well, because the guy, the guy who plays the guy who plays Michael Myers mostly in the film, uh, Nick Castle, who went on to direct The Last Starfighter. Among, amongst other films, yeah, um, he oh, is good. also he's also a member of the Coupe de Villes with uh, Tommy Lee Wallace and uh, yes. John Carpenter. He famously did the music for Big Trouble in Little China. Big mm. Trouble. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and he, um, uh, where is it? Yeah, but he turned up again. They got him to play Michael Myers. In Halloween 2018, like the most recent iteration of it, um, so, he plays him in a few scenes because obviously he's an older, mm, he's older. Yeah. Now, but he played him in a few scenes, but he did he dubbed Michael Myers, so all oh. the grunts and the and the like, all the breathing and everything is Nick Castle. So it's exactly the same as mm. this this one, the first one. That's pretty like good. That. So is the is the remake decent then? It's not a remake. This is this is the weird thing uh, with the oh three right. timelines. Okay. So originally you've got this one, 
Then there's Halloween 2, which has got um, Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance in it, and it basically takes place on the same night or the night afterwards. It's I basically think it's one of those that basically, yeah, like it all starts with the police all arriving at the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it basically it picks up almost immediately from the end of of the first one. And in that one, it's revealed that the reason he's obsessed with Laurie is because Laurie is actually his younger sister who was born after he was put in the asylum and she was adopted. Mm. So, but then... But Harry knew that from inside a ward is anyone's guess. Exactly. Then obviously obviously you you get Halloween 3... Nothing to do with anything mm. else. But so but then you've got Halloween's four, five, and six, which is the return of Michael Myers, the revenge of Michael Myers, and the curse of Michael Myers. And they've all got Donald Pleasance continuing to follow Michael Myers and try and hunt him down. And it gets almost comedically mental. Um I think we did what I can't remember which one we watched. I think it might have been the revenge or the curse. And by then, Donald is hysterical. Yeah. He's like properly, he's like, he is basically like taking a drunk to find an all night off license. He's there, down there, no, stop. And he's just, yeah, rabid almost. Yes. But so, so that's the continue, that was the continuation from the original. Then, uh, then they do Halloween H2O. Uh, which is technically Halloween 7. And that follows on from Halloween 2. So Laurie Strode's back. She is Michael Myers' sister, and he's tracking her down one last time. That was then followed by Halloween Resurrection, which is like a continuation from H2O. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it, but I think she gets killed and Buster Rhymes is in it. That gives you an indication of quite how sort of how it's how two thousand two that film is. Shall we yeah. just say? Because H two O was obviously was released in ninety eight, so it was obviously like the twentieth anniversary. Mm. But now Halloween twenty eighteen, which is what I have to keep calling it because it's only called fucking Halloween, which is really mm. helpful, guys. Thank you. <laughs> is now a direct sequel to the first Halloween. So it cuts out mm. number two, which then cuts out H2O and Resurrection, and also cuts out four, five, and six. And they even address in in that one, they address a thing where someone says, wasn't Laurie Strode Michael Myers' sister? And they say, no, that was like an urban myth. And they kind of write off the other films as their stories or urban myths that have grown up around the, the original film and the incident of the original mm. film. And now I they're going to address it and to kind of give it a a reason for this to suddenly pop up in a whole new. Yeah. And I mean, the great thing is with, I mean, I, I really liked uh, Halloween 2018 and in it, Laurie has, Laurie has basically spent the rest of her life abs- as you would be absolutely fucking traumatized and mm. she has basically gone Sarah Connor. Yeah. And is like mm. trained up and ready to, you know, she she can fucking, she is ready to kill Michael Myers if he ever reappears. 
Well, that sounds very good because that, that you know that and, makes sense. The fact that she almost through luck and fear she managed to fight him off, mm. like so she's got some you know some decent strength in her to you know yeah. And she's yeah, but um, but then the film also then deals with her daughter and her granddaughter because mm. basically her daughter she's kind of estranged from her daughter because she was brought up by Mad Laurie Strode who was like right we have a panic room. We have drills about what happens if there's an intruder. She's been taught mm. to use a gun since she was a kid and things like that because of how much Laurie is affected by surviving the Take over her life movie. completely. Yeah. yeah. And actually, I mean, ev- everyone's really fucking good in it, but Jamie Lee Curtis is fucking outstanding in it. Because it's, it's weird because she is identifiably the first lorry from the first film. Yeah. But you yeah, believe not many films you, that have done that. No. So, and you believe that it is 30 years of, mm. you know, just hardship. And basically a completely fucked life because mm. of this thing that happens to you when you're 16. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I mean, I. Uh, but they're also they've they're now doing sequels to that Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends. So it's sort of oh, oh, oh definitely. Mm. I mean, the, I really I really liked, uh, and also you've got I think John Carpenter's. I mean, he's not heavily involved, but I know that he was a, he's a producer and he's on set and he did the music. Mm. So oh, there's yeah. a lot, you know. He's he's involved. Mm. Um, so how, how was it? So did, did he do? He did the music for 2018. You said as well. No, no, Assault on Precinct 13, which is a film, which is the film he did before Halloween, um, which is like a, a siege movie set in a mm. police station, and uh, basically, again, because similarly with this, this was low budget. He did the music out of necessity more than anything else, but then. <laughs> the music for this, uh, the music yeah. and sound design, as we said, with the breathing in the mask and all that stuff, mm. and the music, the sound of this movie is every bit as important as the visuals. The image yeah. is incredible, and it's really high in the mix and everything. Um, yeah, but I, I think it deserves to be. I think it really amps up. It's great because they put the same music on the kind of stalking scenes as they do on the full-on attack scenes. There's no difference in the music, but it works in both contexts, which is a really strange ability, really. It's a very... John Carpenter has a real ability with making a utility uh, theme or like Mm. a piece of music, which, like you say, it works for the slower stuff. It works for the fast attack, like the attacks and stuff Mm. like that. It's, yeah. But I... I, Because... Um, John Carpenter showed like the financial backers the film and they were like mm, don't think this is going to be a hit and he said well I haven't done the music for it yet and I think he did that he did it in like under a week he did it in like four days or something he wrote oh the music God. he wrote recorded and put the music on and then everyone was like oh my god this is going to be huge yeah and which which indeed it was I know that I, I know that um uh, what was it? So, uh, yeah, so it was shot in 20 days and it was made for $300,000. Bloody hell. 
it went on to make 47 million mm. in the US box office alone. Jesus. And that's and that's in the 70s. So in today's terms, the film cost around about one one million hundred and ninety seven thousand. But it would have been it but it made the equivalent of like a hundred and eighty seven million. It was enormous. Um and in actual fact this was the most successful independent movie of all time till when was it nineteen ninety when that was beaten by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But there you go. I mean, there's no accounting for taste. I was just about to say, that just goes to show the box office doesn't necessarily mean quality. Yeah. uh... But, I mean, this was so fucking successful. It's like, I mean, it also gives you the idea, it gives you a reason for the impetus of why John Carpenter works consistently throughout the 80s because he's had such an enormous return on this. And also you can see what that's why the franchise, they, you know, the the people who own the rights, they refuse to let this franchise die yeah. or sort of change because it is a, a constant money spinner. Now, the best bit was John Carpenter was paid uh, $10,000. That included writing, directing and scoring. But he, but he also got a 10%, uh, he got 10% of any profits and full creative control. Uh, which was his contract was in his contract for delivering the film on time and on budget, which he did. Hmm. So yeah, so he was making ten percent of forty-seven million. Wow, back on it. And actually, and um, this is someone that I think is a part of the. Uh, this is definitely someone part of the John Carpenter story, but also just interesting as well is the producer who was also the right who also co-wrote with John Carpenter, Deborah Hill. She worked for no salary but took a percentage. And again, it's a fucking smart move on this film. You know, it right. really is. And actually, because he had con- because he had c- creative control, John Carpenter was, a- was able to put John Carpenter's Halloween yeah. as, the t- as the title. So, you know, he knew about branding. He knew to keep- his name would be up front permanently on this film. So and what else had he done? Um, well, I mean, he- all the subsequent Before- films... Before, no, been, before this, uh, he'd only really done he'd done Dark Star and Assault on Precinct Thirteen, and I mm. think a TV movie called uh, Someone to Watch Over Me or something like that, or somebody's okay. Watching so nothing. Nothing. He hadn't. This no, this was, this, this was his first real sort of major. Mm. This was definitely his first sort of and major. Yeah, and having his name on it like that probably did a lot. Oh, of definitely, and then. And also, subsequently, all his films—I think, well, pretty much all his films—are John Carpenter's. But that's but that makes sense after John this. Carp- then that's going to add a lot to the film. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Once it, it you makes- build the brand. But I mean, but Deborah Hill was sort of very like she was a real pioneer because there were this. I don't think there's many female producers now, mm. let alone this is like 1978, mm. and. She like like I said, she co-wrote the film. In fact, I think they sort of divvied it up that she wrote the teenagers' dialogue, and mm. John Carpenter concentrated on the Loomis 
dialogue scenes and stuff like that. And uh, probably wisely, because I don't think that John Carpenter was ever a teenage girl, so he probably... No. <laughs> his, his insights might not have been as good. Um, and she was actually, at one point, her and John Carpenter were together. In fact, mm. Jamie Lee Curtis said that they were like her film mum and dad. Oh. And uh, when they when they got when they split up and uh, I think they actually were married. I think they, when they got divorced, she said she burst into tears because it was like because it was like mum and dad splitting up. Um, but she uh, and actually uh, Deborah Hill came from Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is obviously yeah. it's Haddonfield, Illinois, but it's the the title. Yeah. As a producer, she um, she worked at, and co-wrote with John Carpenter, The Fog. Uh, Halloween 2, uh, Escape from LA, Escape from New York. Um, but she also produced The Dead Zone, Clue, Adventures in Babysitting, The Fisher King, Big Top Pee Wee, uh, World Trade Center, Attack of the 50 Foot Woman, and the remake of The Fog. And, wow. You know, and but she That's was really, an impressive resume. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. But she was very respected in the industry unfortunately uh, she died in 2005 of cancer oh. um but um no but deborah hill really it this is this is this is a team that creates halloween it's mm. john carpenter and deb and deborah hill together who write it and you know bring it to the screen and everything and it's um yeah, and, and obviously you've also got other sort of names in there like Tommy Lee Wallace, who goes on to direct Halloween Three. He was the production designer on this, and you know it's a lot of it's a lot of friends and sort of people, a lot of whom they all continue to work together in one form or another. Uh, just we could say Deborah Hill was was an unsung hero then. Deborah Hill definitely, I think. Our first one in a long time, but yeah, yeah. very, very well so. deserved. Very much so, yeah. And also, she's just, there's, I mean, Halloween's a very well documented film, but like the interviews, there's interviews with her and John Carpenter that are just absolutely brilliant. And you get, mm. you get an idea as well of, of how Deborah Hill's definitely like the driving force in so much as she's got that right level of. Right, no, we need to get this shit done. Yeah, that you need as a producer, sort of. Mm. You know, you it's it's the ideal thing where you've got sort of like someone who's doing all the. Well, we need we need a panaglide, and we need this to happen, mm. and it's like, yeah, but someone needs to bring it. Yeah. <laughs> we and need, need the fucking money and stop yeah. talking about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, and but no, she's um, no, she Deborah Hill was brilliant and. She deserves as much credit for this as John Gardner does, without mm-hmm. a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, like I say, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a lot sort of weird. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. The obviously the Michael Myers mask, very famously, it's William Shatner. Mm. It's a William Shatner uh, Star Trek Halloween mask. Chris, you're looking like you. This That's is news not. to you. Yeah, no, I did not see that. Fair enough. Yeah, it was a Captain Kirk. Who the fuck would want a William Shatner mask? That's a bit against me. It was big. It was because Star Trek was big at the time. So it was literally a rubber mask that you could put on. They did Kirk and they did Spock. And at one point they were considering Spock for uh, Michael Myers. 
Um, but basically, yeah, it's a William Shatner Halloween mask, and it had sideburns and eyebrows, so they pulled those yeah. off. They cut the eyes so they would be wider because it was properly like a set of eyes that you would look through. Hmm. So they cut the eyes, like the eye holes, so they were much wider and just became like, and then just painted it white and painted the hair black, like spray painted it black, which is why it's all crazy and grimy and everything else like that. Yeah, and then do like the really, and that is, that's the Michael Myers mask. And apparently, and I'll bet, I'll, I'll take it with a pinch of salt because he strikes me as a man who might be full of it. Um, but apparently William Shatner reckons he's been trick-or-treating in a Michael Myers mask. <laughs> for his own amusement. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but also, like, so, like I said, you had um, Nick Castle, who is Michael Myers for most of the film. But when the mask comes off, that's an actor called Tony Moran. Or Tony Moran, he um, he's the one who, when Laurie pulls the mask off, and you just see the face really briefly. Yeah. Um, then uh, Will Sandin plays Michael, age six, but it's Deborah Hill's arm that is doing the stabbing, huh. because she had like the smallest hands of, of anyone in the crew, so she was, so she's the one doing the stabbing with the with the like clown sleeve on, and. Both Tommy Lee Wallace and John Carpenter played Michael Myers in in sort of bits where they just needed a shot, and maybe Nick Castle wasn't on set or whatever like that, so they just stuck on the mask and the overalls and they did it. <laughs> so yeah, so it adds to that sort of thing of not being able to quite get an angle on it. Is that any time that you see Michael Myers, it could be one of four people <laughs> essentially. And that, which is again, but also they only refer to him as the shape, yeah, in the script, which is an explanation for him. Like, that's that is what it is, it's just a like there's no character to him, and I think that's what's (laughs) terrifying about him. He's got no personality, no character, there's no you know, there's no wisecracks, it's not Freddy, no, and actually. I was saying, I was saying this when I was, when I was watching it with Claire. Is I was uh, I was saying this with um, he doesn't lumber, he doesn't loom, or like he doesn't like sort of he doesn't do a Jason, yeah, where it's that sort of very purposeful sort of march, mm. sort of doesn't look impervious. He sort of sometimes like when he comes down the stairs, he just comes down the stairs quickly. Mm. There's no like doomy thuds, although he never breaks into a run. But he does. He comes down the stairs quickly. He moves fairly fluidly. Hmm. There's no sort of like it's not like a mummy sort of scenario. You no. know, it's not that sort of, uh, jerky movements and stiff limbs or anything else like it's that. It's the same when the kid runs into him outside the school when he smashes when the kids break hmm. the club in and that kid runs into him and the way he kind of grabs that kid's shoulders. If that was like Jason Voorhees, he would have literally stood there and the kid would have bounced off him, but he didn't. Yeah. He, did, like, he sort of caught the kid mid-fall and just put him back on his feet and just let him go about his shit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so as you say, so he doesn't, he doesn't act like he's a zombie or anything. He just acts like a normal person, but yeah. just behind that facade. That being said, the, I think the only bit of acting that he does in this whole thing is uh, when he lifts the boyfriend up and nails him to that cupboard door with the knife, and then he does yeah. that sort of dog 
head on one side looking at yeah. him, which I just love that. Like, it's the only time you see him stop and just kind of Consider. look at all he's done see, and kind of take it all. Looking at his handiwork. Yeah. Because it's kind of... Oh, it's, he's stuck up there. It's, <laughs> almo it's almost like... It's almost a bit sort of... It's like a, someone hanging a painting. <laughs> Does that look right there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of... It, it, it's, yeah, it is the only time that you see him in reflection rather than either stalking or killing. Yeah. And he does and move that body as well. So that could be you could be right, Adam. It could be a don't know if that quite works there. And that's yeah. why he takes it and hangs it upside down in the cupboard to scare Laurie later. Yeah. And actually when I went to see um when I went to see John Carpenter play live, mm. um they uh the place I can't remember what venue it was we went to, but they'd done out the lobby they did it out with loads of pumpkins and they even had the Judith Myers um, uh, tombstone. Nice. gravestone, And it was really, really well done with just like the candles around it and everything. It looked perfect. So did, he, really... did he play like, all of his theme tunes then? Yeah, it was... It was, was, that what it it was... Essentially, that's... I mean, essentially, that's what John Carpenter does these days. He produces films based on his old work mm. and... Um, tours as a musician which is kind of like because music is i think his dad was a music teacher so that's why that's why he he knows how to play because i mean like he like he did the thing of um uh halloween's in four or five timing so okay. it's which again is not a usual timing yeah so it again, makes it it's slightly a, more uncanny it's a bit off yeah you're just a yeah. bit wrong Mm. In some way or another, and um, but yeah, I, and that's yeah, he did. He does, yeah, he does Halloween and all, all the hits. Um, he even even they even covered the thing, which obviously is not him. That's Ennio Morricone. Um, mm. But my favourite bit was because uh, he's he's a he's a good showman, John Carpenter yeah. in his own way, and uh, he's like, well, thank thanks thanks to everyone for coming. You know, it's been. But when you go out on those, when you go out in the streets, be aware, because Christine might be waiting for you. And that's mm -hmm. the the encore. They let it finish with the music from Christine. So mm -hmm. I've just bought that on Blu-ray this week. Yeah, I'm looking forward to watching that. Yeah, um, I, that came out. I I managed to pick that up in Sainsbury's when they had a decent Halloween selection of Blu-rays one year, and uh, right. yeah, entertaining. Um. Oh, I've not seen it since I was in school. So, yeah, 25 <laughs> years since I've seen it. Um, I, I remember being gutted, actually, because wasn't the... Didn't you go and see John Carpenter on Halloween? Yes, I think it was, actually. because yes, I remember I was gutted because I'd booked to go to Transylvania and, like, a week later, you went, John Carpenter's playing on mm. Halloween night. And I was like, oh, fuck off. I'm in Transylvania. <laughs> yeah. yeah, me, Dean and Drew went to see John Carpenter and paid homage. Mm. We were oh god! Was, Didn't you it, say he came on crazy late though, like two hours late or something? Oh yeah, no, because we we were like, is there a support act? What's happening? We don't know. And then yeah, he didn't come on for ages. And then, blimey, by the time he did though, it was like, I think I think he knew what he was doing because by the time he came on, we were all just so glad. I mean, he could have come out and farted down the microphone, and we were all just <laughs> like, oh, it's John, <laughs> <laughs> he's here, he's here. 
<laughs> what annoyed me though is that he didn't have what he should have done is he should have had an emoji of a motor vehicle and an emoji of a writing implement and he could have called it the car pen tour <laughs> don't err that there's err in my puns he needs you as a consultant doesn't he I'm with Claire on this one I'm not going to lie so so as I say, I don't. This is one of those films I love, but I don't go back to as much as I'd like. And when I sat down to think about it yesterday, before I watched it, I actually and I did intend to look up when it was, but I didn't quite get around to it because I'm a lazy fucker. Um, <laughs> but I think the last time I saw this was when we went on Halloween night to the John Carpenter all nighter all nighter mm. at the Prince Charles in Leicester Square, which has got to be seven or eight years now. Probably longer than that. I've been with Claire for seven years. Oh, Nearly. I... Keep talking amongst yourselves. I'll see if I can Google it. But yeah, I think that was the last time I watched it. And it's funny because <laughs> it is a slow burn film and it's um, it feels atmospheric and it feels like one you need to watch at home and actually get into. But it's one of the rare occasions where we watched a film with a rowdy, drunken, 11 mm. o'clock on a Saturday night audience and it was fantastic. Like, it was just, there was popcorn in the air and people shouting stuff. And it, oh, it, it was just brilliant. Like, I, I think yeah. if everyone had, you've all seen the film a dozen times. You don't need to, and, and there isn't enough going on that late at night when you're all half pissed and you're in for an all nighter. Like, you need a bit more stimulus. And it, it just played perfectly to that audience as well, which really surprised me. Curiously enough, I think John Carpenter has this amazing touch, and it's not just because, let's face it, we might as well just change the name of this podcast to Licking John Carpenter's Balls, because <laughs> that's what I'll be doing. Um, um, he has, all, the majority of his films have a lovely thing where you can watch them in that setting or watch them alone at home. Mm. Like, yeah, that's and, you interesting. and you don't yeah. lose anything either way. Yeah. It can it can be a great group of friends pissed movie, or it can just be a great. Oh well, I just sat down and watched that last night, and uh, mm. yeah, you always forget that's really good, isn't it? Uh, I suppose that's the like, there is sort of two layers in it. There is a contemplative, you know, dark side. Mm. What's going on here? But yeah, you don't really need that to enjoy. There's no. yeah, it's a lot else. I mean, the originally they were going to call it the babysit, the, the babysitter murderers. Start again. They were going to call it the Babysitter Murders, um, and basically it was meant to take place over a couple of nights. But because of how low the budget was, they were like, "Well, that's going to be like three costume changes. We can't afford that." So they condensed it all into one night, and then set, and then someone came up with the bright idea of, "Well, if it's one night, do it on Halloween," <laughs> and it's like that. Because it's such an iconic thing that you're like, yeah. sort of, surely that's the you would have expected that was the starting point. We're going to so, make yeah. a film set at Halloween. Had there, had there been any other big um, well, Halloween based movies? Well, oh, sorry, just to intersect. Sorry, it wasn't Halloween. It was the 20th of October, 2012. So it was eight years ago. Good uh, and mm. the week before. Halloween, <laughs> which is probably why I was allowed to go because it wasn't actually my wedding anniversary. Just. Yeah, you you've kind of done really well there, and also scuppered yourself in other ways. Yeah, 
Um, but the, fun, funnily enough, though Halloween is really a defining moment, certainly in terms of slasher films, it's the it's kind of the grand like the granddaddy of them all. But there's actually there was actually the film Black Christmas, which came out in 1974, which is really the first of what we would describe as the modern slasher films. And Still not seen it. I'd need to watch it before this year. So, well, for this year's run up, certainly. Well, why don't we do it on the show? Because I don't think I've seen it. <gasps> we should just. That's Christmas. So, so we're doing Black Christmas. We're going yeah. back in time. Back in time, people. Yeah. But and but it's interesting that obviously that's the only one that comes before. But already it's that thing of basing it around a holiday. And then after Halloween, you get a lot of sort of you get things like Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is again set at Christmas, um, and just loads of ones that are based around holidays. Even even to a certain extent, Friday the Thirteenth is a date based thing. And um, yeah, it's like they've all been done now as well, haven't they? It's like it's mm. they've started getting you know like. Um, yeah, to the point where they're going back and filling in all the holidays that haven't been done, and it's just getting a bit. Well, there's like like my bloody Valentine and yeah. stuff like that, and it's yeah that pretty much all the big ones. Are done. I'm looking forward to Pancake Day. I think that's going to be a <laughs> fucking belter. Thanks, Killing. We can watch Thanks Killing. Yes, Thanks Killing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Thanks Killing is is a beauty unto itself, but um. Yeah, and I mean, like again, the budget's tiny. So the the car that um, the the state hospital vehicle that Michael nicks mm. that was a fucking rental car. <laughs> they said to Tommy Lee Wallace, "Find a car that looks like it would be like a government car." Yeah. So he went and rented an Oldsmobile from like the local rental place, stuck a decal on the side of it, stuck the mesh in there, and and put Illinois license plates on it, and didn't tell them. They just hired it for two weeks. <laughs> so yeah, the company the company they hired it off didn't know that that was the case. Um, it was shot in spring, um, and so to to give the effect of it being autumn. Or fall for our American cousins. Yes. Um, yeah, to give it that look, they, Tommy Lee Wallace hand painted leaves. No. To throw around the set, to look, to, to throw oh, around the streets. So that, so, yes, yeah, so to give like. There's a lot of those as well. I know. Well, but, well, interestingly enough, and this is something, this is definitely something I didn't know before. Looking into the looking into Halloween for this episode, um, they obviously had some people on set to throw throw the leaves around to put them out. One of whom was a young Robert England. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because it was shot in Pasadena, and I think I think um, yeah, Robert England said his flatmate said, "Oh, I've got this job like working on a movie set. Do you want to come along?" And yeah, he's one of the <laughs> Robert England put the leaves there. So, <laughs> you saying about the set? One of the other things I did make a note of, I've written down pre no win, no fee uh, pavements. The pavements in this, like there's, there's a scene where they're walking down the road 
and the paving stones are just all over the place. And I was like, how they're walking down them in them great big horrible wedge 70s shoes. And I was like, you wouldn't be allowed streets like that now because it literally, if you take your eyes off the pavement for a second, you'd break your fucking neck. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you. Brought a health and safety eye to it, which is it's just wonderful. And the other thing that I picked up, yeah, is the fact that that woman is wearing those wedges. Um, what is the girl? It's the blonde girl of the three. Um, is wearing the ugliest pair of footwear I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, well, thank you, Bianca. That's, next uh... time you watch it, just check out. They're they're like they're like wedge wicker sandals with socks. It's fucking horrific. Even for the seventies, there's no excuse for that. Adam, I can see you sniggering. Has, has any <laughs> yeah. other critic ever mentioned that? It certainly didn't come up on any of the pieces that I read. I think. <laughs> I think Rod Reaver said someone had an ugly jumper, but that was it. They haven't got my eye for fashion. That is just no. As soon as it came up, I was like, no, 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 no. I hope she dies. Actually, the um, (laughs) the and the Myers house, the abandoned version of the Myers, or how it looks. That's it was an abandoned house that they filmed at. Nice. So they found it. It looked exactly as it does in the present day bits of the film. And then after they'd filmed it, everyone chipped in, painted, (laughs) repaired it, furnished it, decorated it, so they could then go back and film 1963. (laughs) And it actually looks like a nice house. (laughs) So so technically, in the middle of it, you get fucking DIY SOS. (laughs) (laughs) They just like doled up this house which had been <laughs> but I mean yeah so they found it in the state in which it is when it's like the boogeyman's house nice so, and then retroactively went back and yeah and I suppose wanted... if the film had been a flop they could have sold the house and well <laughs> sold, sold the uh, rental car as well although I think that, that yeah. is, that's definitely fraud <laughs> <laughs> Other things, because John Carpenter always, in interviews, John Carpenter says about the use of its, as he describes it, it's your camera needs to be authoritative. And it's the thing of Michael almost owns everything. Hmm. You know, he is, he's never sort of, whenever it's his POV or whatever like that, this is all just his. Yeah. He, you know, it's not, um, he, he's never sneaking in. He's never on the back foot. He it's does not, everything yeah. wide and open. Yeah. And commanding. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And also that, that thing as well, where, cause John Carpenter, um, it's on that horror cafe that we've spoken about a few times where he talks about the use of, cause I mean, he has like proper, it's, like a proper full widescreen for this. But then he'll have like the people very small in the middle of the frame. Hmm. Like when they're walking along. So immediately it kind of becomes Mm -hmm. very sort of oppressive because it's almost like they're tiny trapped in the middle of this huge frame. Hmm. But then as the film progresses, it ends up in a cupboard. Yeah. Yeah. 
you start off where it's like the wide streets and like it is the full like vista of Haddonfield. And then it reduces down and down and down and down until eventually you're hiding in a cupboard, stabbing someone in the neck with a coat hanger. <laughs> so, which, I mean, we've all been there. Yeah, you're right. See, I've never, I would never have noticed that if you hadn't pointed it out. <clears throat> but no, you're right. Like the, the end 20 minutes of that scene is all just close-ups, like close-up mm. after close-up pretty much on just... It fills the screen. There's no background. Even the the scene where Laurie is on the on the landing and the, she's talking to the two kids, and Michael's coming up the stairs and she's saying she's killed him. Yeah, it's only a very small space over her shoulder where you can see him moving. It's not like it mm. would be now, where you'd make it like half of the frame so that no idiot can miss it. Like yeah, just you can just see something moving. You don't have to see it's him because you know what's happening. It's yeah, it's, it's fantastically made. It's such a beautifully shot film. I think this is the thing is that John Carpenter, whatever happens, he as a technician, he is fucking impeccable. Yeah, he really he knows what he's doing and has and as this sort of establishes, has always known what he's doing. Hmm. It's yeah. I think um, he, and the interesting thing to note is that the uh, they use a machine in this. It's the Panaglide, which is a rival of the Steadicam. Oh, uh, it's not actually Steadicam mm -hmm. when they're doing all the sort of very slow, uh, creeping shots and things like that. But I mean, it's. I think it's just a testament of, you know. A, it was a very successful film at the time, so everyone, everyone knew it. Mm. Everyone went, you know, everyone. But I think it's certainly on slasher films is influenced to varying degrees of success. Mm. Is undeniable, but I think it's also one of those ones where I, it's like with the Rob Zombie one. The thing that pissed me off with the Rob Zombie one was having to give you Michael's backstory. Mm -hmm. And John Carpenter said that the whole point is that the audience, he, he never wanted the audience to ever be able to identify with Michael Myers. Yeah. To make him unknowable. Mm. Because that is scarier than, you know, someone, someone who you know their reasons. Even if they're still, even if the end result is still the same, that they're coming to stab you. If you've got a reason for it, that's less scary than just some fucking random decided to kill you one day. Yeah, that was one of my other things that I did make a note of. <clears throat> and tell me if I got it wrong. But he says at one point, <clears throat> excuse me, um, and it might be that I misunderstood it. But she says about... Um, uh, when he so when Loomis is in the car with the nurse and they're driving mm. up to the sanitarium, um, and she basically says, "Oh, the thing I hate is when they start rambling and wittering," and he says, "Oh, you don't have to worry about that with Michael," and we yeah. never hear him make any sound, so you kind of get the impression he never says anything. But I, I, just, but I don't know if he does because that was my other question. Was I heard that this time and went, "Oh, so he's literally a mute throughout after what mm. happens," and then I was like. If, if that's the case, then how does Loomis know what he's planning and just immediately goes, he's going back to Haddonfield and he's definitely going to do it again. It's 150 miles, but he's going to travel it. Like, it just, 
So, it, as you say, it's that kind of ambiguity of never, mm. they never quite specify, and it leaves I, it to your own imagination, I think. Well, I don't think that, I don't think it's ever, I think Michael is meant to be mute. It's never meant to be that he has said anything. But it's, I think it's probably an, it's probably an element of just, well, he'll go back to what he knows. Hmm because he's been in this sanatorium since he was six. So where would he go? He'd go home. Yeah. Because he's never been beyond that. Yeah. And But no, definitely it is, because it's what's the, the, the line is, I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Oh. And then 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. And it's, yeah. It's just brilliantly written. As you, mm. But that's the thing, I think... And I think that's why it's great having two people on a screenplay, as you say. So John Carpenter can write that, and then you've got a young woman writing the teenage girl's dialogue. Yeah. I think that's why it feels so genuine. Well, because Car- uh, I mean, Carpenter, as we've sort of said on sort of numerous previous episodes, is very, very steeped in British horror. And, mm. and I think he... That is that that is Hammer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting as well because it's like you don't necessarily do you want to necessarily give PJ Souls that line of dialogue, or do you want it to just say totally a lot? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think it's a wise decision. So, but yeah, I think that there's actually. I mean, so you saying about the two girls, that was the other thing, sorry, uh, not to cut you off, but I, the no, other thing right. I noticed this time, there's a particular kill in this that was really graphic, and I don't remember it from from my previous watches. When Annie gets in the car and he strangles her from the seat behind, it's, it's almost as if he's like, oh, I'll just strangle her and it'll be done. And then it goes on and on and mm. on, and she doesn't die. And then in the end, he does stab her, doesn't he? Because he can't... Yeah. He can't get her to die because um, she, yeah, because it's taking too long for him. He's assuming so fucking brutal. Like I don't remember that yeah. kill at all. When I watched it this time, I was like, "This just isn't ending." And in the end, he obviously <laughs> just feels the same and just pulls that knife. Oh, and it's horrific to watch. Mm. Really, really violent. Because it's but interesting. Show you anything? Because it's interesting that he does sort of. As he goes, he steps up his game when he realises what he's capable of and what he's not. Because hmm. he's obviously quite into strangling her. Hmm. And then by the time, you, and weirdly enough, by the time you get to Laurie, he's really given up that as a technique. Yeah. He doesn't really it. Which is also, because this was the thing, Claire said it got a bit Stormtroopers in that he was unable to stab the main protagonist. Yeah. Effectively. And I was like, yeah, but every time he stabs someone, he's usually got hold of them. Yeah. Whereas this is him trying, oh, well, I'll just slice out her. And it's like, oh, I'm a bit crap at that. Okay, <laughs> okay never mind. 
That's why I don't talk, because that's what his voice is like. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hi, Laurie. Thank you. Hiya. Uh, it's but... almost like he's honing his technique as, mm. as it all goes along. So he's, it's like, so he kills his sister, and then everything from there is kind of an experiment, and he's trying to work it out. I mean, it's... In another film, I think it was possibly a far-fetched thing to, for us to to project onto it. But, but yeah. in this film, I think it genuinely feels like it could have been that well thought out. I mean, well, if he's struggling to kill Laurie, is it because she's got some of his magic? Mm-hmm. We need to watch four, five, the, and six. Un, the Undying. Yeah. Well, you well, need because... to Chris and tell us about them because then I can again. Apparently, I can't remember which one it is, but one of one of four, five, and six, it ends up with this thing that he's been resurrected by some witch cult or something. Yeah, and it's sort of again, yeah, I don't because that's the thing I like. I quite like with two fair the Halloween twenty eighteen basically just is, oh yeah, he was a tough bastard, and that's why we didn't kill him. But he's still a living, he's a human being. Yeah. Although by the end of it, they then go, um, I mean, spoiler alert, but it has been out two years, people. At the end of it, he's apparently killed. And then the very last thing before the credits roll is just a... Mm. Yeah. It's like, oh, for fuck's sake. And obviously they're doing two more ones. So unless they're, unless they're <laughs> really going to fucking surprise everyone and do a sequel to Halloween 3. <gasps> Shit, I now we be excited by that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's probably a good note to end on. Um, <laughs> oh, go and watch Halloween free. Um, but yeah, like, so Chris, you know, considering all the stuff we've shown you and we've waited until this late, <coughs> this very late stage in the game, really, to show you this film, do you like, you know, all the tropes and stuff now, but you, you really enjoyed this. Do you see why this was a, a classic and. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, like I'd be interested to see the 2018 not remake, but, you know, just to see, especially if it's got, like say, Jamie Lee Curtis in it. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, to see how they've decided to do it now. But, yeah, I mean, it, like everything is in this film. It's, yeah. It's, well, should it's you say excellent. 2018, um, same time next year, lads? <laughs> yeah, well, if we're all still alive this time yeah. next year, I'm guessing we're yeah. not going to have much on. So, uh <laughs> <laughs> be burning in the streets and uh, us recording Halloween 2018. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Thanks. Oh, hang on a minute. Hang yeah, on. what are we doing I'm next? Getting ahead of myself. Talk about yourselves. Anyway, that's what I said to him. And I said, and I said, and I said to him, yes, he is staying the night. So, Mike, I think we should put your your impression of uh, Donald Pleasance, what's his name, Loomis. Well, I'm glad you've mentioned that because the one last thing that I've forgotten is we recently did Psycho, Mm. episode 93. And in this, you've got Dr. Sam Loomis. Sam Loomis is the name of Marion's... Uh, boyfriend in Psycho. Um, the nurse who is with Dr. Loomis is called Marion Chambers, which is a amalgam of Marion Crane and Sheriff Chambers from Psycho. 
And then John Carpenter referred to casting Jamie Lee Curtis, obviously who is the daughter of Janet Lee, uh, who played Marion Crane, as the ultimate homage to Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. And, and it's yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. That is good. And I, I did I, I did read an awful fucking article because someone's come up with a theory that it's not just that he's named after Sam Loomis, he is Sam Loomis. And he's Sam Loomis from Psycho, and that's the reason why he knows about how to deal with Michael Myers, because uh, he's dealt with psychos before, and, you know, he, he <laughs> knows that they just need shooting and stuff like that. And that's like, So what, what, also, what happened? Did he have a bad landing out of a fucking aeroplane? Because he's now, like, what, three foot shorter. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I don't, I, don't remember, I don't remember Sam Loomis in... Psycho, he ran a hardware store. I don't think he was on his way to psychiatric or medical school. Yeah, I don't think that's something you can pick up at night school in two years. I think it's, it's pretty no. much a, a full-on vocation, really. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, because actually, yeah, because if it's, he meets him, if he meets him as a six-year-old, that would have been 1963, which was three years after the events of Psycho. So, he did a lot in that time. <laughs> Uh, right, so sorry, good job filling time, people. Um, so next episode is episode 99, um, <gasps> and Adam has quite rightly pointed out that we couldn't possibly hit 100 episodes without covering previously mentioned in this episode George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah, so it is, it is, I think it's one, it's certainly one of those ones that we've definitely got to tick off. I was oh, going to say, yeah. when you mentioned him earlier, I don't think we've seen any of his, have we? Um, don't no. Think we actually, because we've, no. we've been toying around. We are, we've got to do Martin at some point, definitely. Hmm. Um, I've still but, seen it. And we've, we've not, but we've not covered any of the other of the dead movies. No. Um, I mean, Romero has done other films and also other um, like non-horror films as well. But mm. um, yeah, no, this would be the first time we're covering uh, Mr. Romero. And uh, oh, he's a, he's, he's a lovely chap as well. If you ever see an interview with him, Chris, he seems like the loveliest man. He is awesome. Pretty yeah, awesome. he just seems I like. I could not tell how serious you were. So. Oh, no, no. He yeah. genuinely <laughs> just seems like a fucking yeah. dude. Mm, he's one of those. Yeah, he's really. He's not kind of overly excited, but. Mm. He just loves talking about the craft and mm. he's one of those people who's obviously... Good been... film. <laughs> he's been talking about this film for 50 years and he's still as excited now as he was when he made it. Yeah, um, he has, has, he, he never, his enthusiasm never dimmed, which I think is, yeah, which is lovely. Yeah, and yeah. He's, he's just as respectful talking to your average nerd at a conference as he is talking to, you know, Mark Gatiss or, you mm. know, with John Carpenter or whatever. When it's, it, mm. it's people on his own level, kind of, he's just a lovely, lovely guy. So, um, oh, that's great. Yeah, we need to cover his, and, and again, it's, it's in the same super low budget, independent, someone who just yeah. really cares and really wants to make an impressionable movie. Mm. Um, Again, I think this is this is uh, without argument, without exaggeration. I think Night of the Living Dead, like Halloween, is one of those just proper landmarks 
that mm. regenerates and alters the progress of the horror genre in you know incalculably mm. it really is a, a, a turning point and i think because uh as i'm sure we'll discuss on the episode next week so i won't uh i i won't give any spoilers um but it is public domain so yeah. it is also impossibly in the background uh, so as we saw the thing from another world 10 percent of yeah. horror films if anyone's watching a movie oh, in a horror film so. It's always Night of the Living Dead, always, um, mm. because it deserves that much respect, as yeah. I'm sure you will see when we watch it for the next episode. So, right. thanks ever so much for listening, everybody. Happy Halloween. We hope you have a fantastic 31st. Yeah. Um, it is, of course, happening on a Saturday this year. And for those of you in the UK, we get an extra hour as well, because the clocks go back. Um Shame we're all in lockdown, otherwise we'd be having the most yeah. amazing parties. But as it is, yeah. it is what it is, and we just need to uh, barrel on and get on with it. So thanks so much for listening. Have an amazing Halloween. Go and watch Night of the Living Dead, and we'll see you in a week's time. Good night. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, everyone. I've gone from waving goodbye to waving my arms around like a fucking kids presenter, and I don't know why, because still nobody can see me. Yeah, but they might. <laughs> Chris is now voguing for no reason. <laughs>